It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you so you are empowered with knowledge, so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I want to give you some great strategies to save big money in your life. Easy to say, not necessarily easy to do. Later, I've been getting a lot of questions about people stealing your home from you right out from under you. And I want to tell you what to watch out for. I want to tell you how you can protect yourself. So I am someone who was very lucky in my life in a lot of ways. But part of it, I made my own luck. And I may be repeating part of what I'm going to say now Maybe something you've heard before, others have not heard it at all. So I'm going to digress for just a second. When I was a teenager, my dad lost his job. He'd worked for a family business for his in-laws for almost 30 years, and they let him go. And it was then and only then I found out when my dad sat me down and he was really upset and I... I thought, you know, as a teenager, I thought, oh my goodness, my dad's going to tell me he's dying of something. And he said, I have something terrible to tell you. And it's like, oh yeah, that's what he's going to tell me. And then he said, I lost my job. And I started smiling ear to ear. And he said, what are you smiling about? I said, well, I thought you were going to tell me you were dying. And all of a sudden, he broke out in a big smile. He had this wonderful smile. And he broke out in this big smile because it took a teenager to give him perspective that there were things worse than losing your job. But then he went on to say, and I was, had just gotten into college and was in college, and this was at Thanksgiving. I'd come home for a visit. He said, uh, I don't think there's money for you to go back to college in January. This is Thanksgiving. And I'm like, what? Because I thought my parents, like many of us might, uh, you know, they, they had money. But it turned out they had always spent everything that came in. And this was a real bump in the road. And it took a few years, but my parents got back up on their feet. But it was a life-changing moment for me. And so I went back and uh, where I went to college, most people were night students. They were people who worked full time and went to college at night. I went to the American University. And at the time I was there, don't know how many kids there are now, kids. I mean, people of different ages. But there were, I think, 14,000 and a little over 2,000 were daytime college students. And the rest were night students. And so it was really easy there for me to re-register as a night student. I scrambled and got a job. It was the tail end of the Vietnam War, and I got a job as a civilian with the Air Force. And I worked my way through the rest of school. And uh, I then got a higher-paying job when the war ended at HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development, because I was going to school in D.C., I mean, most college students wouldn't have most places the opportunity to get what was a really good paying job for a college student 
at that point, a lower level government employee makes more than people do in the private sector, a higher level government employee makes less than people do in the private sector. So if, for those of you who are old uh, federal government employees, I was a GS4 and then I was a GS5. It's kind of like a rank in the military, but it's what I was there. And then when I finished undergraduate school, I got a job with IBM as a bill collector for IBM, and they paid my way through graduate school. Not with the salary I made, they had a tuition reimbursement program, which those are very present today. So many places will pay for you to go to college working for them. And so I was able to get through school, no student loans. Tuitions were much cheaper in that era. And then, of course, IBM paid for my grad school. And when things happen to you as a teenager, it has the greatest impact on our lives. I know, Krista, you've shared with me things that happened to you as a teenager, and those things still color your life the rest of your life. And for me, in my case, it was the finance. And so knowing my parents had not saved money, I um, lived on every other paycheck when I was working. I mean, after I got out of undergraduate school and then I didn't have to worry about school tuition, I was used to living on very little, and I decided, extreme, that I was going to live on every other paycheck. Well, the funny thing is, today, that's a very common strategy that's talked about a lot, that you live on alternate paychecks and you save the other. So live on one, save one. Live on one, save one. And those are people known as max savers. There are different terms for it. It's part of the FIRE movement. Financial independence, retire early. That it's all about you live on less, so you're used to living on less. So when you stop working, it costs you less to live. And because you're living on less, you're able to accumulate enormous amounts saved. And thus, you're able to make the choices you want to with your life which is when you don't want to work anymore, when you want to work less, you want to live somewhere else or whatever, you have the financial freedom to be able to do it. Another thing that is often recommended and is something that I was always about was buying a house that had rental income that came with it. And you'll hear me when I talk with people who are interested in being a real estate investor I talk about when they call me and ask me about a duplex or a triplex or whatever, I always talk about my built-in bias is buying something that has a garage apartment or a basement apartment or something like that where you have a principal home that you live in or if it's just you and you want to live in the garage apartment or the basement apartment, you rent out the rest of the place. I learned that first when I was 18 years old and went to visit a friend at college who was renting from a professor the place to live, and the professor made more money renting out properties to students than she made teaching at the university. Wow. And she lived, she was single, she lived in the little part and rented out the rest of it to students and developed amazing wealth in a job that you normally don't do that as a college professor. So I learned as a teenager also 
the value of having, even where you live, having rental income. I remember my wife and I bought a house back in 1996, and we needed to take out a mortgage for part of the purchase price of that house, because I hate taking out debt, but it was a bigger house and we needed a mortgage, and it had a garage apartment to rent out. And so we made a deal. I said, as long as we have a mortgage, can we have a tenant to help defray costs and pay off the mortgage quicker? And so we had a tenant and that you found for us who <laughs> became a great friend and still is this day. And then uh, she moved out, bought her own home, and then we had another tenant. And, and we paid off the home in five and a half years. And we owned it completely free and clear. We had a tenant there, and we weren't going to kick our tenant out. And I kept hoping that Lane had forgotten our deal, (laughs) that we would have a tenant until we paid off the mortgage. So this tenant stayed about another year and moved out. And I was looking for a new tenant. And I come home from work one day. And the garage apartment is suddenly my office. <laughs> she said, you remember our deal? When we no longer have a tenant anymore, we aren't going to have that. Because she, she didn't, she was not as much into that as I am. I mean, to this moment, I would still have a tenant because I love the income coming in. But those are, are specific things that I did that also were often recommended by people in the financial independence movement, that you live on no more than half of what you make and that you always try to have income production in your life, even where you live. I think about some of the podcasters that have built their financial independence all through owning investment properties. They've done nothing else that other than, you know, no stock investing, anything like that. It's all been investment properties. And that is absolutely a workable strategy if you're willing to manage them. Harder to do right now with the run-up in housing prices. But there's something else, too. What's the goal? Money is not the goal. Money is not the God. The goal is what are you trying to accomplish? It's so hard to make the changes in your life with how you handle money if there's not something specific you're trying to accomplish. And let me tell you, it's not that you want to be on the golf course every day. That is not a real goal. It's not a realistic goal. And people who, when they retire and think they're just going to play golf, all the time find that that ends up being pretty empty it's not that's not it it has to be what are you trying to do is it that you really wanted to do a different kind of thing with your life but doesn't pay a lot maybe you wanted to be involved with a religious thing a church whatever Um, maybe it's that there's something you really want to do, like travel the world and visit a hundred countries or whatever it is. It needs to be something that really moves the needle in your life, something that really 
is worth it enough to you that you rethink and reorient what you're going to do with your life. Many people with uh, the FIRE movement are all about being able to retire by uh, age certain, 45, 50, 40, whatever it is. But, excuse me, for most people like that, it's not about never working again. It's about being able to have the freedom to make the choices you want to and whatever you do, including work, is because it's a want to, not a have to. So when you hear me talk about strategies that create space in your life, freedom in your life, remember money is the currency you use to do that, but it's not the goal in itself. It's what you're trying to accomplish And that's what makes it possible. Without a roadmap, though, it's really hard to do this stuff. We'll get to some questions after the break, but I do want to read this to you because I think it kind of goes with what you were talking about from Cecilia in Ohio. Ten years ago, my son graduated from vet school with a giant student loan. You let us know that there's a public service loan forgiveness program. Well, my son got a job with the USDA. Now, 10 years later, his student loan is forgiven in the amount of over $360,000. Thank you, Clark. And let your listeners know that public service has lots of perks. That is really cool because the student loan burden for people who study veterinary medicine is one of the worst of all areas in terms of being financially backbreaking and the federal government has a big need for people who have studied veterinary medicine to take on a public service job. And in turn, you do the things right after 120 payments, you're done. And there's no tax bill due on your part. The federal government, your fellow taxpayers, absorb the entire cost of your remaining student loan balance. And Paul in California wants to know what's going on with the Equifax data breach claims. Based on Clark's advice, I filed a claim with Equifax in January of 2020. To date, I've heard nothing. Could Clark please update us? This is the nightmare that never ends. Never ends. So the thing with the Equifax settlement is it goes on and on and on. And now there are new filing dates that are up to 2024 for certain things. You have to document expenses and all that. It is um, crazy. So there is an amount of money that you may remember originally was promoted as the amount people would receive from the Equifax data breach, which was like 125 bucks, and nothing like that is going to happen at all because that was all fiction. The number of claimants is so large that the amount of money people are going to receive who can't document specific costs that they suffered, that's the up to 2024 thing. The amount of money people are going to receive is teensy, teensy, teensy tiny. And so um, the reality is Equifax got away with it. Nobody went to prison. And Equifax suffered such minor financial harm for the greatest data breach in the history of the modern era and no punishment to fit the crime at all. 
And those of us that were harmed by Equifax, it's just the way it's going to be. It's really unfortunate, and it could lead people to be cynical. But don't be cynical. Be hopeful. Just because things like that happen doesn't mean things are always going to end rotten terrible. So every once in a while, there's a story on local TV about somebody having their house stolen from them. And it makes anybody who owns a home tremble with fear. I want to tell you how this works and how worried you need to be coming up. It's become a big deal with uh, ads promoted on the web, on radio, on TV, with people trying to get you to buy uh, real estate title protection insurance. It's not really insurance. It's like an alert kind of thing because there have been these spectacular crimes that have occurred in various places around the country where a criminal will find a house, most often one that is vacant, and they'll go search to see if there's any debt against the house, and then they will submit fraudulent documents and basically steal the value of that house. They find there's no mortgage against it. They'll do fraudulent documents pretending that they are the owner. They'll do a loan application. They'll do a cash out. And you don't even know if you are the ultimate owner of the property that it's been foreclosed on because this fraudulent loan that you didn't originate and you didn't know about was never paid. And the the stories make great television when you have somebody standing there on the, the street with the house behind them that's no longer theirs. Okay, so this occasionally does happen. And it's a very, very rare crime and hideous when it does. For a normal homeowner living in a home, uh, particularly anybody with an existing mortgage on a home, this is something that you don't need to worry about. It almost always involves a home, let's say, that you inherited and you haven't done anything with it sitting there vacant and criminals just looking for a crime of opportunity. Now, the good news is more and more local jurisdictions, typically at the county level around the country, have a registry you can be on for any property you own where you're notified if there's any action involving your title anybody attempting to take out debt or anything like that. The earlier you are aware of it, the better. And these services are free. These registries are free. Because unwinding all this and dealing with the mess is a hassle for everybody. The lender who got cheated, the homeowner who somebody's cheating, all of that. And by the way, if you inherit a property or you move away and you leave a property vacant, know that you are leaving an open invitation to squatters, to vandals, to all different kinds of things. Uh, Of them, the rarest would be somebody figuring out how they could steal money against your title, impersonating you, committing fraud. And this is, is just unfortunate. Now, you do prevent anybody taking out debt as if they're you if you have a credit freeze in place. How many times do I talk about credit freeze in the first place? Now, there's another form of this 
where it involves uh, dishonest people at various points, professionals in the process, where someone will identify a vacant property, or one that seems not to be tended to. They will have somebody who impersonates the owner, and they will sell it to somebody else who then takes out a loan against it, and that will defeat your credit freeze. But again, these are very rare crimes, and these are uh, fairly sophisticated criminals. But the danger really comes from you having a property that you essentially have abandoned. You need to take care of real estate. Real estate that is not managed, that is not handled, goes bad in so many different ways. This is just one of them. Subscribing to those pay services is not something that I recommend. It's not a scam or anything like that. I just don't recommend it. Okay, we've got some questions. This is from Elaine in Oregon. Hi, Clark. I'm a dog walker and pet care specialist that works as an independent contractor using the app Rover.com. As of 2022, they want us to use Stripe in order to receive our pay. I'm not familiar with it. Is it safe? Yeah, it's a. It's just a payment platform. It's a common one. There are things we do we, with Stripe yeah, for our company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's a normal mainstream kind of thing. So I wouldn't feel nervous about using them at all. And from Mike in Texas, can you clear something up for me? I'm funding my Roth through Fidelity and contributing to my employer-sponsored 401k to get the match. My employer offers a Roth option, but I have not participated because I want to make sure I max out my Roth IRA each year. However, during your show, you seem to allude to the fact that I could max out my Fidelity Roth and contribute to my employer-sponsored Roth. Am I misunderstanding you? Okay, so this is something that is a great confusion to people because for so long, there was a traditional 401k and then there was the traditional and Roth IRA. There were almost no employers that offered Roth 401ks. Now, almost every employer offers the option of 401k and the ones who don't, I don't know what they're thinking, but you can do either Roth 401k or traditional. The contribution limits based on your income that you can contribute to a retirement account, it doesn't matter if you're doing a Roth 401k to the max, you are also eligible to do a Roth IRA to the max, no different than if you did a traditional 401k and a Roth IRA, because the limits when you can't do the Roth IRA anymore is based on how much money you're earning. And that is not at all affected by whether you're doing traditional 401k or Roth, except in one circumstance. Do you know what that is? If you are earning a lot of money and you do traditional 401k, it may bring you below the threshold of income where you'd maintain your eligibility for a Roth IRA. But these are big numbers we're talking about. Huge. only huge. So only in that circumstance where you're using a traditional to bring your uh, adjusted income down to a point where you can also do a Roth IRA, that's the only case where there would be a difference. But otherwise, unless you're a big income earner, you can put as much money as you want to in that Roth 401k and do your Roth IRA. This is from Regis in New Hampshire. 
Team Clark, I have a dilemma, which I have no one to carry out my end of life matters, such as disposition of assets and advanced medical directives. The one person I had has moved to Florida. What does someone do in this case? I'm sure there must be many people with a dilemma such as this. I'm 57 and in great health, not married at the present time, and no kids that I know of, LOL. (laughs) What does someone do in this case? Thanks for all that your team does, and stop giving Krista... C-R-A-P about her Starbucks. Thank you, Regis. Mom, what does C-R-A-P mean? (laughs) So, Regis, um, there's not a problem with you having the person you trust in Florida being the person you have handle the disposition of your assets. You know them, you trust them, and the fact that they've moved from New Hampshire to Florida from one tax-free state to another that that's not relevant. Just I like that. Must be smart. Free. Anyway, um, it means that they can still fill this role for you. Of course, it's a little easier for them if they were local in New Hampshire, but it's a okay. And I want somebody who you know and trust to be the named individual as long as they're willing to serve, rather than you trying to figure out what to do when you don't have that other individual in your life who you can trust. I mean, what people do in this situation most frequently when you don't have that is they hire a lawyer to fill this role for them would be the most common thing you would do, but then that would eat up some of the assets that you would want to be used for whatever purpose you wish at the end of your life. And this is from Mike in Nevada. I received an email regarding a class action settlement and I believe this this service was used to connect my bank account to certain apps. Is there anything to this, and is it worth submitting a claim form? Isn't that the second class action question you've asked me this podcast, or am I losing my mind? Yes, Equifax. Equifax earlier. This is okay. a newer one. With the, I didn't the think I was dreaming. The company is Plaid Inc. Okay, so this is another one of those settlements that the number of people that use the Plaid platform versus the amount of money that's there I don't think that this is of use to you. I think the only people who are going to make any money are the lawyers. It's rare in these class actions that there's enough money that the effort really needs to be there. In fact, usually when there is a class action that has meaningful money, somebody always asks us questions about it, and we say, yeah, this is one you do want to jump on, but for the most part, nah. Well, even if it's $3.50, that'll buy you lunch, right? You think I spend that much today? I spent $3.24 If somebody said you could have three fifty for, you know, wouldn't you take it and fill out the form? You say your time's worth nothing. You who has this expensive Starbucks right in front of me? <laughs> um, have I gotten soft? I don't know, man. Maybe I've gotten soft. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm a fraud. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> No, I'm not filling out the paperwork. <laughs> Sorry. I, I would, actually. It's kind of funny. You actually do? Yeah, I do. What's the smallest you've ever gotten from one I of got the like a dollar forty something once. Okay. Put it in the bank. Well, I love how much great feedback I get from you, Krista, and from our listeners about our podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember, we got great money-saving advice for you 24 hours a day at clark.com and the greatest deals for your wallet at clarkdeals.com.